Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Patty James, co-chair of the club's health and medicine member-led forum and chair of this program. It's my pleasure to introduce... Pete Myers. He's founder, CEO, and chief scientist of Environmental Health Sciences, a not-for-profit organization that promotes public understanding of advances in scientific research on links between the environment and human health. Dr. Myers holds a doctorate in the biological sciences from the University of California, Berkeley, and a BA from Reed College. For a dozen years, beginning in 1990, Dr. Myers served as director of the W. Alton Jones Foundation in Charlottesville, Virginia, along with co-authors Dr. Theo Colburn and Diane Dumanowski, Myers wrote Our Stolen Future, a book that explores the scientific basis of concern for how contamination threatens fetal development. Dr. Myers is now actively involved in primary research on the impacts of endocrine disruption on human health. He's on the boards of the Science Communication Network and the Jennifer Altman Foundation. Until its merger with Pew Charitable Trust, in 2007, he served as board chair of the National Environmental Trust. He has also served as board president of the Consultative Group on Biological Diversity, an association of more than 40 foundations supporting work on biodiversity, climate, energy, and environmental health, and board chair of H. John Heinz Center for Science, Economics, and the Environment. He's an adjunct professor of chemistry at Carnegie Mellon University. Dr. Myers has been honored with many awards, including the Champion of Environmental Health Research from the National Institutes of Health, the Endrican Society's Laureate Award for Outstanding Public Service, and the Sierra Club's Distinguished Service Award. Please welcome Dr. Myers. Thank you, Patty. It's just fantastic to be here. Um, and thank you all for sacrificing a sunny evening to spend it indoors with me. Um, I, as Patty mentioned, I went, I did my degree work at Berkeley in the 1970s, and it was always a dream of mine to speak here. Since then, so Patty, thank you for making that happen. Um, I'm going to be talking about the health risks of plastic pollutants and how to solve them. This is. This is a big problem, it's, and every day almost we learn how much bigger it, it, it probably is. Um, the chemical industry got its real starts making dyes in Switzerland in the mid, like 1860, 1870, and it got to, took off slowly from then, grew ever more rapidly, and, and it really came into its own in the mid-part mid of the 20th century, particularly after World War II. In 1935, you started to see signs like this. Um, DuPont, better things for better living through chemistry. They were promising a better future. And you know what? Chemistry has delivered a better future, one that we could not live as we do today without the rewards that all that really creative and innovative work has done. Um, this man on Dustin Hoffman's left is uh, one of the most prescient people in the world because he said in 1967, one word, plastics. 
And uh, that brings us to today where the American Chemistry Council tells us that plastics are an important part of your healthy diet. Think about that for a moment. We have gained immense power over chemical processes. This has created a new world that our grandparents, especially our great-grandparents, would not ever recognize because of the technologies that's brought to bear. Um, here you see the industry's own data, looking back and looking forward on, in terms of the prospective growth of the plastics industry. Um, anyone familiar with an exponential growth curve? There you got it. That's big. Um, the graduate uh, came out in 1967. In 2017, there was an interesting industry review of, of plastic production uh, globally, and they determined that roughly one-half, two, by 2017, roughly one-half of all plastic ever produced in history had been produced in the last 13 years. That's an exponential growth curve. Okay, And today, we're headed towards a f almost five-fold increase in production by 2050. Again, exponential. And any evolutionary biologist, ecological scientist, shivers at the mention of exponential growth curves. Um, so this really has brought us miracles. We have refineries taking petroleum and making all sorts of variations of fuels to drive our transportation systems, and also plastics to make plast uh, plastic. Um, we have modern transportation because of modern chemistry. Uh, we have modern medicine taking advantage of all sorts of materials without which they could not practice how they do today. Um, pharmaceuticals, pharmaceutical industry was brought to us by modern chemistry. Um, Fruit Loops. Plastic packaging has been brought to us by the modern world. Computers all use the outcome of these incredibly innovative scientists. Um, even Pringles. Um, Pringles would not exist without chemistry. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> so um, modern chemistry makes modern life possible. And plastic is a big part of modern life. Um, you think of plastic specifically, and, and what that brings to us, it brings us all those intricate tools that medicine needs. It gives us the innards of cars. You know, now, how many, how, what percentage of a car is plastic? Really, It's really amazing. Um, lots of houses are mostly made out of plastic today. This is vinyl siding. Medicines are packaged in plastic, so it can reach the lower part of your gut before it starts to dissolve, dissolve and be metabolized. Um, plastic packages frustrate us all every day when we go shopping. And, of course, there's plastic wrap um, and plastic bottles. Well, I actually take this issue very seriously, personally, because that's my granddaughter who's right over there. And she was born two months early, weighing 2.5 pounds. She, today, she was weighed at eight pounds. That's her on the scale today. Um, her mother doesn't know I was going to do this. But when you think about what it took for her to survive those last three months, it, it was modern chemistry, modern medicine, and plastic.
So I really have been a beneficiary of all that science. But um, it turns out that in early November, in the middle of her second, Shory's second trimester, I went and visited her, and her house was surrounded by smoke from paradise, from the campfires, surrounded by smoke. And a lot of that smoke was the result of burning plastic in paradise, and the things that resulted as a result of it came from that expo- exposures. And unfortunately, that led Shory to have... We, we believe it, it, there's epidemiological data. It's not certain, but it's significant, suggesting that that was what caused her pre- preeclampsia, which led Sierra to be born two months early. Um, so uh, there are downsides of the pervasive nature of plastic as it's used in our society. And unfortunately, those dangers have we've become aware of them, of them much more slowly than we have benef- we've sensed the benefits of the uses of modern plastic. And I want to talk to you about those dangers and why the discoveries were so slow um, and uh, what we can do about that. So plastic has become ubiquitous in our lives. It's causing significant, large, and growing problems. We've learned slowly but with increasing speed, as the science that I do and my colleagues do and others do, UCSF is a major center for this work, um, that our unquestioning embrace of plastics has created unexpected hazards, both because of physical and toxicity problems. Um, There's about 10 tons of plastic produced every second in the world today. Um, Five million tons per year go into the oceans. Uh, That leads to those classic photographs. How many of you have seen a photograph like this? Albatross, chick that died because of ingesting plastic. Really classic. And by the way, um, you all need to watch Albatross the film, which is this amazing documentary. It will make you fall in love with Albatross. Most of the movie is why you should fall in love with Albatross, and then it, it hits you from behind with the tragedy of how plastic effects albatross. It's definitely worth watching. It's freely available on the web now. Um, More recently, we're discovering that there are microscopic impacts of plastics in the marine environment. Uh, This is a mycid, a small crustacean, from the bottom of the Marianas Trench. Okay? That's, That's as deep as you can go. And yet there are plastics down there. They swallow the plastic and then they're swallowed by a bigger thing, and that's swallowed by a bigger thing, and it rises up to the top of the food chain, which is us and whales. We, as I will explain to you, we don't yet know the full implications of that uh, passage through the food chain to the top, but the more we learn, the more concerned we become. Um, as a marine ecologist put it, plastic has infiltrated every level of the food chain in the marine environment until now it's coming back to us on our dinner plates. Um, the Royal Society of Science uh, published an article about a month ago that is highlighted here. They looked at amphipods, little crustaceans, little shrimp, in the six deepest marine ecosystems on Earth, and they found microplastics and nanoplastics in, at the bottom of the food chain in those systems, in the deepest parts of the, the, the ocean on Earth. And then today... Today, how many of you heard about the Pyrenees? 
that microplastics, microplastics are being found at the top of the Pyrenees, blown there by the winds. This is not a local issue. Those, those microplastics on the Pyrenees are not from nearby, nearby towns. And the levels they're seeing on the top of the Pyrenees are equivalent to what you find in major metropolitan areas. It's not low. NPR had a great story about this today uh, also. It's, this was from The Guardian. Um, I uh, joke sometimes, you know, the, the people who study long-term trends in, um, paleo, in paleontology talk about the different epochs of the Earth, the Jurassic, the Pleistocene, the Anthropocene, which is what they say we're living in now. I call it the Plastocene. <laughs> but there's an easy shortening to it, and it's the Obscene. So um, microplastics being blown all over the world are entering, excuse me? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Hi, guys. Welcome. Glad you made it. Um, we do not know all of what this means. We know a lot, as I've told you, and I'll tell you more. We know enough to be worried. We know a lot about the plastics. We know, first of all, there's way too much already, and it's infiltrating every part of the world's ecosystems. There are no pristine places on Earth. None. It's everywhere. These are the famous gyres in the mid-Pacific, mid-Atlantic. But I was actually in Hawaii two weeks ago at a showing of Jack Johnson's documentary called The Smog of the Seas. If you have a chance to see it, watch it. It's online. It's awesome. And he, he points out that while, yes, the gyres are a problem, the real problem are their microplastics in the water column and the nanoplastics in the water column, because that's what is entering into the food chain, and that's what is virtually impossible for us to control. Um, we know toxics can be plastic. That's what I work on, uh, and I'll explain some of that to you. Um, this is a list of hormonally related diseases for which there is credible scientific evidence that some portion of the disease burden of each of those is being contributed to by exposures to chemicals that come out of plastics or are on plastics. Diabetes, infertility, obesity, endometriosis, hormonally related cancers. The list is long. And for not, those are all multifactorial diseases. There's no single cause. But as I said, the evidence now establishes in the scientific literature that chemicals related to plastics are contributing to the epidemics of those diseases that the human population around the world is suffering today. So where does the toxicity in plastics come from? Well, plastic is a polymer, which is a, composed of multiple monomers that are pieced together and, and bonded by various chemical bonds. Sometimes the plastic is inherent to that monomer. The classic example of that is bisphenol A, BPA. How many of you heard of BPA? Good. I'll talk a lot about that. Um, that monomer, BPA, binds to several hormone receptors in our bodies and changes how genes are expressed. And I'll get into this. But it's, it's that role of the monomer in altering gene expression that leads to that sort of toxicity in plastics. Secondly, there are things that are called plastic additives. You have a monomer that's in a soup of like-minded molecules and it doesn't do exactly what the chemical engineers want. It's, it might be too rigid. It might be too soft. So they have to add plastic additives into the soup to make it behave properly. Uh, some of you, I'm sure most of you know what PVC is. 
polyvinyl chloride. Well, polyvinyl chloride, as a if there's nothing been added to it, polyvinyl chloride is really rigid. That's how they can make uh, sidings out of it for houses. But if you add th- a family of additives called phthalates, there are multiple members of that family. If you add those to PVC, you can take this rigid stuff and make a rubber ducky out of it. And that's what's done. Uh, less now, we'll get into that. But a, a classic rubber ducky has somewhere around 40% phthalates by weight um, to achieve the squishiness of that toy. Those are additives. Then there's this gnarly group of substances called non-intentionally added substances. Well, what, what might that be? Um, when you manufacture plastic, you do, often do so, most of the time you do so, especially where most plastic is manufactured, which is in East Asia, you do it in open vats in the air. Okay, so the vat is exposed to whatever pollution is in the air. And the plastic brew absorbs what's in the air, but no one knows exactly what's going in there. So every batch of plastic is different than, even though it's the same monomer, and even though it may have the same purposely added uh, substances in it, like phthalates, because of that pollution by air, from the air, Every batch, it depends upon which direction the wind came from. It depends upon whether it's day or night. It's a, an epidemiological nightmare because it can, be, it can look to be the same thing, and yet toxicologically it can be quite different. Um, the last um, source of, of uh, toxicity is, goes through a process, two processes called adsorption and absorption. And that's where you, you have a piece of plastic, and it's floating around somewhere. And sometimes toxic compounds like um, persistent organic pollutants, DDT, uh, uh, PCBs, adsorb to the surface. They stick to the surface. Okay, so the, the piece of plastic, which might have been benign, instead takes on the toxicity characteristics of the toxic compound that adsorbed to its surface. Um, the other thing is absorption, where the molecule is actually sucked into the body of the plastic. Where that becomes really important is in the ocean. Not the only place where it's important. But the reason is, is that the ocean, we, I, I was fascinated when I learned this. The ocean has a, micro, a sea surface microlayer on top. It's maybe a tenth of a millimeter deep. And it is composed of the lipids that have emerged from dead bodies of crustaceans, of fish, or whatever, the fatty, t- the fatty tissues that um, sort of dissolved after they died and the chemicals rise to the surface of the ocean, and they form this layer. It's all across the surface of the ocean. Sometimes it's broken up by waves, but it's there. And it's full of persistent, it's full of a variety of toxic compounds because they like to be in lipids. In fact, when you look at the amount of the concentration of these compounds in the water column beneath the sea surface microlayer, Compare that to the concentration in that microlayer. The microlayer can be a hundred thousand times more concentrated with those substances than the water column, and that's where the plastic's rolling around. Okay, so the plastic is rolling around in that sea surface microlayer, gathering by absorption and absorption the the toxic materials that are in that soup. 
And that is one of the reasons why recycling ocean plastics is a real problem, because you're, you may begin with a totally non-toxic plastic, of which there are, appear to be a few, but by the time it goes through this process, every piece of plastic in the ocean is contaminated with something nasty. So you've got to be really careful about the implications of how you're going to handle that if you're trying to treat plastic, if you're trying to recover it. Um, so there's a picture of the sea surface microlayer pretty much um, fully contaminated by plastics rolling around, picking up contaminants from that sea surface microlayer. So we know a lot about plastic toxicity. Um, I, my specialty in this area is endocrine disruption or hormone hacking. Uh, how do you interfere with the signals that guide the development of life? Hormones, they're, they're, they do a bunch of things. Most importantly, they guide gene expression. They turn genes on and off at just the right times when they're needed in development of life. Sarah would not be as healthy as she is today if genes had been going gnarly on her and hormones had been going gnarly. So a hormone sends a signal into the, the genetic apparatus and it turns on a gene at the right time. Endocrine disrupting compounds hack that system. They sometimes don't allow the, the gene to be turned on by blocking it, the signal. Sometimes they cause genes to turn on that shouldn't have been on at that time. And that's both those things can lead to real problems. Hormone Hormones guide development it, it, to control how many fingers you have, whether your brain is wired properly, whether your immune system is built properly. In, they affect your fertility. They affect every dimension of life. And so when hacking happens, it can be a real problem. It can lead to, it can contribute to this cluster of diseases that I talked about earlier. Um, one of the most striking findings in the field of endocrine disruption over the last 50 years is that there has been a 50% decline in human sperm count over the last five decades in Western countries. All the science in this is not done. That long-term trend was controversial when it first came out in 1992, but there's been a lot of international work to get as close as possible to certainty about the reality of that decline. The most recent paper came out in 2017. Basically what it said is, yeah, when this guy, Neil Skocky, back from uh, Copenhagen, published the study in 1992, he got it right. And I can t tell you about some of the arguments over that, but ask me about it if you want to. Um, interestingly and disturbingly, that decline is not slowing down. My, a colleague of mine, Shauna Swan, is the senior author of this most recent paper, and they broke it into different time segments and looked at the slope of the curve of the decline, and they found that the earliest slope is the same as the current slope. So there's no signal that the decline is slowing down. Now, you never can be certain about projecting stuff like that into the future. But they said, well, what if it doesn't slow down? Um, people, men in Western countries, are going to have difficulty reproducing by about 2060. Um, while the original data were from developing countries, there's now good data emerging from several, particularly Asian countries. And in China, uh, the declines are occurring faster today based on available data than they are in the Western world. Um, so it's led some people to speculate, are we in a male fertility death spiral? Plastics are contributing to that, it appears, especially phthalates, that, that additive to PVC and to other things. 
Phthalates are what are called anti-androgens. They interfere with how testosterone works. And there's been a lot of, a lot of animal research um, revealing what's called the phthalate syndrome, where you expose a young male in mom, in, in the womb in mom, to several different phthalates, and they wind up with reduced sperm count in adulthood. They wind up with an increased risk of uh, a birth defect called hypospadias, which is a really nasty malformation of the penis. They also wind up with undescended testicles at birth. Um, and it turns out we now know there's something called the testicular dysgenesis syndrome, which is a similar pattern in people statistically related to the presence of phthalates. And it has to do, actually, with failures of some key cells in the male reproductive tract to, um, to e evolve properly, to differentiate properly during early fetal development. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Um, I don't know where you are in your food cycle, whether you're before dinner or after dinner, but I'm <laughs> nonetheless going to share with you um, this inside look at a male mouse, a mouse my age in mouse years. This is work by Fred Bomsal's laboratory at the University of Missouri. And this is a normal mouse. It's the control. And that mouse has uh, normal kidneys, nice and healthy and red looking. It has a normal sized bladder. And it's a male, so it has testes. Um, Von Saul did this work to ask what are the consequences of being exposed in the womb to bisphenol A if you're a mouse? Um, and this is one of the most striking examples of one of the key aspects of endocrine disruption, which is. What happens in the womb doesn't appear necessarily at birth, but it can play out over the lifetime of the individual. So this is a mouse in my age, or my age in mouse years. This is the control. Here's the experimental. It was exposed to 20 parts per billion of bisphenol A during fetal life. And unless you are a really sophisticated molecular biologist, you would never know what was going on when that animal was born. But here's what happened. You have the urethra, which is the tube through which the male mouse and all male humans pee, and it passes through the prostate gland. And there's some particular tissue right there where it goes through the prostate, which reacted to that bisphenol A exposure by changing the epigenetic programming of that tissue so that as the animal aged and as the, rate, the amount of testosterone to estrogen decreased, which is normal for adult men, um, that urethra slowly contracted until the animal could no longer pee. Within a few days, this particular mouse would have died because the bladder would have exploded. Um, there is, the, the urologists are really excited by this work because it's the first potential animal model of what's called obstructive bladder syndrome, which is increasingly common in the U.S. We don't know if that's related to BPA exposure. We know that this is caused by BPA exposure. But um, this is a, just an amazing example of how events early in life play out over a long time. You can't see them. But this has gotten worse. This is grandma, ma, 
granddaughter and great-granddaughter in a family. And I use this photograph to illustrate a, a theme that's emerged in, in the last um, oh, 15 years of endocrine disruption science, which is called transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. Sounds really complicated. The concept is very simple. Great-grandmother, in mice experiments, great-grandmother is exposed to a compound when she's pregnant. That means that the fetus is exposed, okay? And if, if you look at the, if the fetus is a female, it turns out because she's already forming eggs of her daughter, the granddaughter is exposed in, by that one single exposure. That makes sense? But grand, great-granddaughter is never exposed directly. Nonetheless, the consequences of that exposure to great-grandmother are transmitted through to great-granddaughter without changes in DNA sequence. It, there are changes in epigenetic control of gene expression. Um, it's pretty striking. It's, it, this is, if there's any reason to be precautionary about how we regulate endocrine-disrupting chemicals, it's, it's because of this. We're not just threatening one generation or two. And to make it even more complicated, there'll be a paper coming out in about a week that is, is the second strong documentation that sometimes you don't see the effect in the first generation exposed, or even the second. You see it in the third and the fourth. So when you think about how people do tox, toxicological testing to establish safety, the, the, no one, none of them have ever even imagined looking at the granddaughter or the great-granddaughter for the consequences of exposure to great-grandmother. So we got to do a massive rethink for this and some other reasons I'll mention shortly. Um, the truth is we are profoundly ignorant about chemical safety, including about plastic safety. There's several reasons. Most chemicals in use today have not been tested, period. They've been assumed to be safe because there weren't dead bodies when the key laws were passed. And it was dead bodies, which were what counted in the 1970s. That was the big standard being used by toxicology. And so they, were, they entered into a category generally regarded as safe. Most have not been tested. The ones that have, most of the tests used are flawed and outdated. I mean, the FDA today is using some tests in these procedures that were developed in the 1930s. They're not using the procedures that are at work in research funded by the National Institutes of Health today. In fact, they fight. They actively fight incorporating those modern medicinal insights into how you determine what's safe and what's not. It's crazy. Um, thirdly, some of the key assumptions underlying these tests, not just the detailed tests, but the assumptions that, are, that form the basis of the tests are wrong. They're rejected by modern science, and I'll, I'll spend some time on one of those. And lastly, uh, unfortunately, because guess what? There's a lot of money at stake. Um, there are people who are paid a lot of money, certainly much more than I'm paid, to manipulate the data that come with regulatory testing so that problems are hidden. I use a metaphor sometimes to help people understand how gross this is. If, how many of you have seen photographs like that from the Hubble Space Telescope? Okay. Well, here's 
an analogy with what the FDA and the EPA are doing with the tests they employ. It's like they see these photographs of the, the galaxies and other formations way out there. And uh, they say, oh, that's interesting. I, I've never seen that. So they go into their backyard with binoculars. And guess what? They don't see it. They use scientific approaches that are extremely out of date. I mentioned that there are some flawed assumptions. I'm going to explain one, hopefully not too nerdishly, uh, with this example and the next example. You can see that there's a mouse here that's normal and the mouse that has a problem. It's morbidly obese. This is work by um, Retha Newbold at the, uh, University, at the National Institute of Environmental Sciences. Um, she followed these mice from birth. Actually, they followed the beginning, began with the moms. At birth, they, it was clearly the same strain of mouse they were using. They measured them throughout to middle age. The amount of caloric intake they had, no difference. Same activity levels. But something was different. Um, it turns out that the morbidly obese mouse was exposed to one part per billion at birth of a, of a synthetic estrogen, an endocrine-disrupting compound. Um, wow, what a result. Um, how did that happen? Well, we know a lot about this science now, thanks to a man named Bruce Blumberg, who's at the University of California, Irvine, and just incidentally has a popular book out last year called The Obesogen Effect, which I strongly recommend if you find this interesting. What he and others have determined is that when that, that newborn mouse was exposed to the estrogen, it caused some stem cells that would have become uh, bone cells instead to become fat cells. So the animal grew up with more fat cells than would have been normal and also weaker bone structures. Um, there are other ways that obesogens work, but that's the best understood mechanism. Um, so here's the question for you, and this is where I get to the, the false assumptions part of this. What would have happened if the animal at birth had been exposed to 1,000 parts per billion? Now, I know all of you are thinking about Monty Python right now and that wafer. Remember the wafer scene where the fat guy is given the... It's just been gorging on food. He's given that last wafer, and he blows up. Do you think that's what would happen here? No. The, the animal that's exposed to a 1,000 parts per billion is thinner than the control animal. He loses weight. So here's the problem. All regulatory testing assumes that you can detect low-dose effects by using high doses. Here you use a 1,000 parts per billion. You don't have a clue what's happening at one part per billion, and you never test because of the way the, the, the tests are structured. I'll show you specifically how that works. Um, so this is a problem. Um, the core assumption that high-dose testing can be used to detect low-dose results uh, does not work with hormone-disrupting compounds or with hormones. What's, they, they, different genes are turned on at different points in the dose-response curve. And in this case and others, one of the things we know is that um, at low doses, there are a set of genes here that are turning on genes in, in the stem cells that cause them to change their developmental pathway and become fat cells. At higher doses, at, at much higher doses, there actually can be genes that are turned on that shut down the low-dose effects. So it's, a, it's like a thermostat, okay? 
It's exactly like a thermostat. Temperature goes up, 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 and finally turns the thermostat off, or th turns the furnace off. Here's a more detailed example. Tamoxifen. How many of you know what tamoxifen is? Okay, it's a really important drug. It's used to test, to, to test, uh, to, excuse me, to treat uh, breast cancer in women. And you can see from this graph why that happens. Those red dots show where the effect of tamoxifen on growth, the growth of the tumor is effective. At high doses, it suppresses tumor growth. Clear? Okay. Um, so let's pretend we are, we, not, let's not pretend. Tamoxifen, it turns out, is one of those drugs that when you take, you don't use it all up. You don't metabolize it all. So you pee it into the water system, and it winds up in rivers. So we want to find out how much it can be in rivers without threatening the health of people who are drinking the water downstream. So um, the way a, tox to a traditional toxicology text test would approach this, in fact, the way that every toxicology test that has ever been used in the world to test for safety of chemicals, this is how they would approach it. They'd start at the high doses. Um, they would identify a dose at which there was no effect. It's called the no-observed adverse effect level. They'd say, okay, fine. That's not having an effect. Let's use some safety factors because uh, people aren't big animals. and uh, Well, they are, but I'm a biologist. Um, rats, aren't little, rats aren't little people. Um, children aren't uh, just little adults. They've got some biochemical differences. And there are lots of differences among people in terms of how we can metabolize compounds. Um, so you, work, you introduce those safety factors. You divide by 10 repeatedly until you get to a level that's determined to be safe. It's typically a thousandfold beneath the no-observed adverse effect level. It is never tested. It's assumed to be safe. It is never tested. So you declare that safe um, and go on with your work with the next chemical. Unfortunately, a colleague of mine at the University of Missouri, a man named Wade Welshens, actually performed the experiments that FDA and EPA would never perform themselves. They did the full-dose response curve. At the safe dose, tamoxifen is stimulating growth of the breast cancer tumor. It's hitting a different set of genes. It's, turning on, it's affecting a different set of genes than the high dose does. And in fact, medicine knows all about this. They call it the tamoxifen flare because it hurts as your tumor is growing. Standard me medicine, but somehow the FDA and the EPA find ways to ignore that. Um, so Wade then performed what, just using their assumptions, uh, finding the true Noel and then estimate using safety factors to estimate what's safe and basically just about nothing is safe so we i mentioned bpa before there's been a big debate about bpa with the fda notably uh maintaining that uh only high doses matter and that those are doses that people are to which people are never exposed but the academic community has repeat has published more than a thousand toxicological papers in which Low doses cause adverse effects. And a, a man named Jerry Heindel at National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences finally decided we, we have to work to figure out why those differences are taking place. Jerry was really frustrated because he's putting millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, into academic research on BPA, and the FDA is ignoring it, even though the academic research uses t assays, tools, principles that are that represent modern medicine, whereas the FDA doesn't. 
So what Jerry did was organize this collaborative program with the FDA and National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences and 14 independent laboratories of academics who had been finding consistent low-dose results with BPA. And um, he got them to perform a, a collaborative experiment where the FDA does what it usually does with traditional testing, and then they gave animals to the academic scientists who performed their types of tests, and then, then they tried to reconcile the differences. Here's what happened. The FDA, in its own data, using pretty uh, insensitive measures, actually found low-dose effects, found them. But guess what? For those endpoints, those the te what they were testing, there were no high-dose effects. So they said, those are not biologically meaningful, so we're going to ignore the statistically significant results we have in low doses, even though endocrinologists tell them, wait a second, that's where it's really interesting. That's what this whole stuff of non-monotonicity predicts. There will be, for certain endpoints, there will be low-dose effects without high-dose effects. But they chose to ignore them. Uh, people who are participating in that um, experiment then took the results from the FDA, the low-dose effects. They were finding them down to 2.5 milligrams per kilogram per day, which is very small. Um, and they said, okay, let's ask, what should the new safety standard be if we accept the low-dose results. And that's where it is. It is literally 20,000 times lower than the FDA's current standard. That takes BPA off the market for many, many uses. But it is resisting this science. In fact, I, I've had meetings. We've published a lot on this. I've had meetings with FDA scientists. I'll never forget one where I'm sitting down with one, one of them, and she says to me, uh, we don't see those results. And I say, of course you don't. You don't test at that level. And she says, okay, uh, you're right, we don't. Literally 10 minutes later, I hear her going through the same conversation with one of my colleagues. It was a big meeting. Um, and a year later, she had left the FDA to earn 10 times what she was earning there for one of these companies that defends chemicals. This revolving door that is a real issue with the FDA and the EPA, if, if you pay attention to the Monsanto trials that have been going on around here, you, you know that the revolving door was a problem, especially in the last couple of days, new data have come out, new, new papers. Um, we got to figure out how to deal with that. But just, just to ask, what, is, what are low doses? Think about this. Now, I can think of at least three people in the room who will get this answer right. Um, what is a part per billion? Well, one way to think about it, it's one pancake in a stack of pancakes 4,000 miles high. Sounds really small, doesn't it? There's another way to think about it. If you have a drop of water that has BPA in it at one part per billion, how many molecules of BPA do you think are in that drop of water? <laughs> Avogadro's number. <laughs> Avogadro's number, okay. Um, 2.65 trillion molecules of BPA in that one drop, a billion times more water. But that, if, when you have endocrinological systems that are responding to really small numbers of individual molecules to turn systems on, that's a lot of molecules to cause damage. So we know enough to worry a lot. We know that toxicity at low doses is real. We're already consuming something like 100 plus microplastic particles each day already in our diets, especially from the marine systems. 
We know that the production of plastics is increasing exponentially. I said it's going to increase by fivefold by 2050. Um, and we know that existing solutions are woefully inadequate. The text there is, there should be a compromise. Why not only dump 9 billion pounds instead? Um, so let's get started. I think a good start has been that there are major campaigns around the world to get rid of single-use plastic, although my understanding is that some of the chemical industry, plastic industry executives saying, you can have that. That's, that's small potatoes compared to what we are worried about. Think of that exponential curve. Um, many of the solutions that are proposed may be the type of thing where today's solutions becomes tomorrow's problem. And I'll give you one example there. There's a proposal to collect all the plastic we can from the oceans and make roads out of them. Um, what happens to roads? They wear. They wear. This is the, one of the most effective ways to make a machine to produce micro and nanoplastics and spew them out into the environment. We have to make sure that today's solutions don't become tomorrow's problems. You have to understand some of the stuff at a pretty deep level before you get behind enthusiastically a solution that, that is, it, I mean, it sounds great at first blush, but too many of the ones that I know about right now have not thought it through carefully enough. Um, don't let solutions, today's solutions become tomorrow's problems. So the last section in this um, began in Camden, New Jersey on a dark and stormy night. I grew up on the East Coast for a lot of my early life. I, I knew Camden is the place where they use cement overshoes if they don't like you, right? <laughs> and I was there that dark and stormy night to lecture to the Society of Plastics Engineers. Not my friends. <laughs> But I found it really useful and have throughout my career to talk to people who you don't agree with, hear what they're saying, um, present your arguments to them, duke it out. And that was what it was like that night. There were many verbal javelins thrown at me because um, industry made sure the audience was populated. People who could t ask tough questions. That's fun often. Anyway, so talk was over. Everyone left the room except for two big guys in the back. And they start walking toward me. And I, I kid you not, I, I started thinking some men overshoes. Um, and they walk up to me and they say, Dr. Myers, we like what you're doing. I go, what? What? <laughs> Squeaky voice. And they said, we like what you're doing because you're making certain commodities plastics unsellable in the market, and we have the replacements, and we're going to make a lot of money. <laughs> and you know what? You heard my background, Reed College in Berkeley. Market forces has not been, up until then, a major part of my thinking. But I started thinking about that then, and then particularly about five years later, I began working with chemists to try to specifically set out to try and help them make money because there is a growing market of moms asking for safer materials. But the chemists don't have a clue as how to how to satisfy that. So if I could help them understand the mechanisms of endocrine disruption in ways that would lead them to generate a whole new generation of inherently safer materials, 
that's pretty cool. And especially now, given what Washington is like, that sort of market approach is likely to go much faster than waiting for the EPA or the FDA to make changes in policy. We need both. We need we, we can't abandon the long-term search for improvements in policies because moms shouldn't have to be chemical engineers to go shopping for their kids. They should be able to trust that things have been tested and that they're safe. That's not the situation today. Um, so let's try and make the movement. Let's try and reinforce the movement in the right direction by helping chemists make money. And so I set out um, with some colleagues uh, from the National Institutes of Health, from universities around the country, um, to organize an effort uh, to create an intellectual framework that would help chemists understand how they could test chemicals they were just beginning to work with before they put it into products, before it became worth a lot of money, before at a time when they could still give it up and walk away and work with something else. And we put together this program. Um, here are three people, very John Warner, Terry Collins, two of the world's most prominent uh, green chemists, Jerry Heindel, uh, who uh, was at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. We were teaching them um, how to work together across disciplines by having a workshop of um, uh, gourmet appetite uh, chefs teach them how to work in groups where the rule was each group is composed of chemists and biologists and um, you couldn't hold a knife and a glass of wine at the same time and you had to work together to, uh, to achieve a goal. And these, we did this multiple times. It was great fun. And it worked. And we wound up with, um, this was the team, uh, about 30 scientists from both fields. We wrote this paper in uh, Green Chemistry, which is the main journal of this field published by the Royal Society of Chemistry in, in London. Help, how can you design endocrine disruption out of the next generation of chemicals? Um, it, there are people thinking about it. We've seen Nestle, for example, make some important moves in, this, in the general direction, not as far as I would like, but um, very. It, it's clear that it has great promise to help generate that next, all, all those new materials that won't uh, contribute to endocrine disruption. And what I think, what's exciting for me, is that I believe this is an important path collectively towards reducing the disease burden of these endocrine-related epidemics. Uh, I'll end with a self-promotion. We published something called, for free, called Into the Plasticine, which is a weekly newsletter that aggregates mainstream media news about what's in the news today. And I can guarantee you that next month, it comes out every Monday, next Monday's edition will include the story about the Pyrenees and links to it. Um, so thank you very much. We have some questions from the audience. Um, here's the first one. I think we have time to, there's four questions to get to all of them. Given our population Given our population trajectory and the massive threats it involves, is there a silver lining here? If we can't find it in us, in, a, in us to use latex, perhaps plastic could save us from ourselves. And I assume that that's referring to the sperm count decline and the effect on population size. Um, that's, that's a really important issue, and the answer is quite possibly 
But the transition to a community, to a world in which there are many fewer young people and many fewer old people has all sorts of other ramifications, particularly economic. Our economy right now depends upon a, a demographic pyramid that looks like this. And if we move to one that looks like this, um, we violate all sorts of s central assumptions about the economy. It's probably going to happen. We need to be thinking about this now, how to manage that transition in the most humane way possible. It could become very ugly very fast. Okay. Next question. How or why do plastics attract toxic substances, particularly in the marine environment? Um, those are chemical properties uh, inherent to the plastics. Um, they, uh, they like lipids. They like fatty stuff, okay? Or fatty stuff likes them. It works both ways. And toxic compounds, many of them accumulate, not all, but many of them accumulate in fatty lipids, in lipids. And so when you put the lipids together with the toxics together with the plastics, you've got a recipe to create toxic plastics. Okay. Um, speak to EU and precautionary principle. How do they do it? Test for safety before putting it in, sorry, products, and is it safer than in U.S.? The European approach to this is much safer. They are much more stringent about uh, having data in hand before things enter the market, and they're in the process now of shifting that. It's complicated. It's, not, it's by no means perfect. But it is much better. And we are currently engaged in a battle uh, with helping European people, um, uh, advocacy organizations, and scientists understand the precautionary implications of endocrine disruption. And there are currently specific fights underway in the European Council and Parliament on what criteria should be used as you decide about how to approach regulating endocrine disrupting compounds. Um, we, it's been seesaw uh, over the last couple of years, been doing this for four or five years. Actually, my daughter participates in some of that work. Um, we haven't gotten the granddaughter in it yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> um, but Europe does it better, not perfectly. Okay. Um, two more questions. How do we educate people about fleece clothing that puts microfibers in the sewer system? That is an important source of uh, microfiber uh, in, in plant microplastics in the ocean. A surprising amount is being done. And I think there's some great work underway by a number of advocacy organizations who have released reports on that over the last couple of years. So there's much more understanding than there has been, mm -hmm. but not nearly as much as we need. Okay. Um, I like, we'll end on this question, and then as soon as you're done answering this, I'll close out the program, and then we'll all go out there, and if you have additional questions, we can ask them as, as uh, Dr. Mai is assigning books. I like this one for the last one. So, where do you see hope? How can we have cradle-to-cradle -cradle circular, I don't know what that word Economy, is. Economy, probably. Circu oh, yes. Well, E-C-O-N, sorry. If so much of our stuff has toxic elements. Uh, actually, one of the most enjoyable moments of my career recently was lecturing in the Abbey Road studio in London, specifically on that. Um, I was invited there by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, who are the world's leaders in the circular economy. And I was there to tell them, it's a problem, and we don't know how to solve it yet. I think that this system I described to you of 
helping chemists make safer materials is an essential piece forward. It's also essential to acknowledge the problems that we have because a lot of people want to look, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. We, we have to be honest with ourselves and our peers as we we're thinking about the potential solutions that are out there. Okay. Well, um, so we want to all thank uh, Dr. Myers for his comments here today. We also thank our audience here as well as those listening to the recording. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 114th year of enlightened discussion is adjourned.